Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is filmmaker Alan Unger, an independent Canadian director whose new movie Gridlocked is a loving throwback to 90s action movies. Starring Dominic Purcell, Stephen Lang, Trish Stratus, Cody Hackman, and Danny Glover, it debuts on Blu-ray, DVD, and VOD today. Alan chose The Rock, Michael Bay's spectacularly splashy bid for action movie dominance, and the movie which, arguably, is the perfect expression of his bigger, badder, louder aesthetic. It's the one where Nicolas Cage is a weapons expert forced to infiltrate Alcatraz with a British super spy played by Sean Connery when the island prison becomes a staging area for terrorists threatening to wipe out San Francisco. Twenty years ago, it seemed like an insane gamble pairing an Oscar-winning character actor with Sean freaking Connery and throwing him into an action picture, but now we simply see that it's Bay's coming out party into that world, uh, which he has subsequently remade in his own image. This is someone else's movie. You know, The Rock, to me, is the perfect action movie. And that's not because it came from the great era of action movies in the 90s. It's because I think it encompasses everything that I'm looking for in an action movie. You know, it's got the heart. It's got the humor. It's got the great set pieces, iconic score, yeah. you know, and, and great storytelling. Even the buddy cop dynamic, even though you wouldn't call it a buddy cop movie, there's something that works really well between Connery and Cage. You know what I mean? I think this came out at, at a time where Cage was doing his holy trinity of movies. He was becoming an action star, right? Yeah. Right before Face Off and Con Air. And I think this movie always stood out to me as being, you know, an adrenaline rush. You know, it, it, it harks back to a time where movies were about entertainment, and you're going, you're grabbing a bag of popcorn, and you're just watching the big screen, and you're you're letting it happen. You know what I mean? And I think what helps with The Rock, for me, is that, you know, you had a great villain in Ed Harris. Even the secondary characters were great. Everything about the movie immerses a viewer into it, and you actually care about the characters, you care about the story, and you care about the action, right? Because what's the point of the action if you're not invested? And that, that for me, I could go on for hours about why, but... The Rock has always stood out to me as as the ultimate action film. Yeah, it's the one to me, like in terms of the the, I mean, in the, the terms of the the way the '90s worked. Mm -hmm. You had Terminator Two, yeah. and then Speed and True Lies in '94, which really kind of presented dueling versions of the perfect American action film. Right. Speed strips absolutely everything non-essential out. It's yeah. a jeep. On a yeah. bus. Like it's just the essential part. And no one thought it would work. Yeah. And it was knocked around and they changed the third act. And historically, like the story of, of how speed became speed is kind of amazing anyway. But then about a month and a half later, True Lies comes out and says, Oh no, no, movies can be two and a half hours and have nuclear explosions and completely insane action sequences. Yep. And then Two years later, The Rock comes along and goes, "Oh yeah, uh, and they can do this and this." We're gonna flip it on its head. Like, it feels it feels like both of them. It feels like Michael Bay, who had made Bad Boys that year in '94, yeah. if I'm not '95, uh, yeah, '94, yeah, '95, yeah, it was right around yeah. there. And he was working on his sort of relatively limited film and watching this other stuff happening and thinking, "What else can we have?" And yeah. then you get The Rock, which is, I mean, I saw it theatrically. I saw it in, in at, a, at a press screening in 1996, yeah. and. People were exhausted. It was like being wrung out as an experience. It was the most aggressive, I think, action film to that date. And happily. 
Yeah, oh no, that's not a negative. It it is just it picks you up and shakes you. It's like a D box chair. Yeah. It just <laughs> like wrestles you to the ground and picks you up and holds you through it and yeah. and somehow is this weird, rich, busy, crazy uh, I remember the scene where a car hits a cable car and the car and the cable car explodes. explodes. It flies up in the air yeah. for no reason. Cable cars don't have gasoline. I think that's what Bay brought to these movies in the nineties. I mean not just him, but you know, there's a suspension of disbelief sure. to these movies. And I think you're right, is that after Speed, after True Lies, I mean, even True Lies, you can argue some of the, the stunts and some of the set pieces are just, they physically don't make oh, sense. Yeah, no, you know, but incredibly but it doesn't matter because, you know, when you're invested and when you're in it and you've been watching this for an hour and a half and you've been on this journey and this adventure with these characters, who cares if they're going to jump out of a plane and, and, and like you know in point break without a parachute and, right. and chase someone like midair you know it's, you're invested yeah. you don't care anymore and the spectacle is essential i think like with armageddon it gets ridiculous with yeah. you know like pearl harbor and the transformers yeah. it sort of tips into insanity i think he knows it's his best movie i i, I think he's been quoted as saying it's I his favorite be, film i wouldn't be surprised and i think to this day everyone will say it, it, you know it's his best yeah. to date and it is the moment too it's that whole Bruckheimer thing where all the pieces lined up just so the outsized epic nature of it is mm -hmm. still really contained and small. It's, yeah. It is a heist picture. Like, it's a break-in picture. Yeah, it's a it really is. small movie given that an entire city has yeah, the scope of yeah. out. But it all, like, that's the thing that they do really, really well, that the focus comes down to this one little job. This, these two people who have to find a way to do all the impossible things and they're supposed to be accompanied by you know, other heroes supporting squads, and that's not a thing. There are more villains than there. It's the, it's the diehard scenario. It is. But vertical. And yeah. yeah. Or horizontal. I always get those wrong. Well, I, I'd say it with Alcatraz, pretty horizontal. Yeah. But, horizontal. you know, I one thing it. that I would actually give it a leg up over, over Die Hard is the villain. Really? And, I, and I'll tell you why. Because I feel when I watch this movie, you know, Stephen Lang always said to me, you know, in terms of Avatar, he's like, you know, when a, when a really good actor, strong actor, plays a villain, like the ultimate villain shouldn't just be great because, you know, they can come up with creative ways to, to make him imposing and make right. you fear him. It's, okay, what is at the heart of the matter? What are his motivations? What is it about him that's making him do this? And I think what's really interesting with The Rock is, as, as you know, he puts the fear of God into you, Ed Harris's character, Hummel. But as the movie continues, you're like, holy shit, I kind of agree with this guy. Oh my god! Like I, I think it was actually based. I think Don Simpson came up with the idea for this character. Mm -hmm. It was based on an article about an army general who was seeking um, some kind of uh, reparations for what had happened to his crew. But as you watch the movie, you know Ed Harris gives it so much of a, a three dimensional spin to it that I, I would put it over Gruber because you know Gruber's a great villain, but I don't sympathize with him that much. You know, I mean that's just me personally. But I think the great thing about Ed Harris's performance is. You know, when you're looking at his eyes and when he's talking about what happened to his, his men, and then later throughout the film, he's got his own tension between the other villains. I think that's something interesting we don't see anymore, yeah. is, is is tension between villains. That's true. You that know is, what I mean? That that does play, I mean, yeah, Die Hard doesn't have what you'd call a twist. It has the moment where they unexpectedly intersect, they, where, yes. where McLean and Gruber run into each other, but then yeah. that's just, an, that kicks off the third act. Right. Uh, the Rock actually does have one huge twist, which is that the villain doesn't have much of an exit strategy. Yeah. And that and is sort of great. It is great. And it also, I think it makes him really human. I think just even alone when, when they kind of turn on each other at the end, he's kind of like, there is no money. We bluff. They, you know, like, yeah. 
and they're kind of you got these mercenaries who are all there for other reasons you know and they're kind of like well, that's not what we signed up for yeah. but he doesn't he doesn't care because you know what he's a military man he's a man of honor and i, I thought that was something that always really stood out to me about yeah. the rock and it's the only time that bay comes even close to being critical of the military mindset in his entire career just because ultimately and it's weird because it's about his he's not being critical so much as having faith in the soldier rather than the generals right he's, he's got Harris's character as someone who is ultimately too decent mm-hmm. to do the atrocious thing mm-hmm. that he's planning that he's threatened to do right but his decency is his downfall because yeah. he also didn't plan on not trusting he's like he's a, yeah. he's a he's an excellent strategist and a poor leader of men like he's a poor judge of character yeah. he's ultimately. a great speaker and he's a great motivational speaker yeah. <laughs> that's what he he's just, got he just picks the wrong motivation yeah exactly but that's like that's a level of complexity that most action movies don't bother with, and most that's, movies don't bother with. And that's, what, and that's, I think, why this sort of always stuck with me as one of the finer action movies. Yeah. I think it's just, it's got a lot more, there's more layers to it, yeah. I think, for sure. And it, you know, even though I say, yeah, it harks back to a time where movies were just about entertainment, I think this took it one step further. You had a, you know, the MacGuffin was really cool, these, these glass, uh, the VX glass balls. Yeah. I mean, it just, it really did, uh, it really had a lot to offer for me as, as a young guy who wanted to get in the business. Well, yeah. So what was your first experience of it? And when did you first see it? Um, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a youngin. So what happened was I obviously could not see this in the theaters when it came out in 96. Right. I was like 10. <laughs> and so God. what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I know. Most people are like, oh, you are, you are a kid. Well, um, youthful enthusiasm is great. Yeah. And so I remember... Um, seeing the previews for it, you know, on home video. And right. when he used to order the VHSs, that Columbia and TriStar used to have those things they would mail you where you would pick a sticker oh, that right. represented a VHS and you would choose the, the movies that you want. old school video club. That's exactly. Right. And uh, the movies that I used to watch would have this trailer in front of it. And I said, I got to get my hands on that. <laughs> of course, there was no way that I could see this movie. So I was at a golf charity uh, event. My father was, was speaking okay. and they had a silent auction. And I'm walking around the silent auction, this little kid, and I go up to this table, and what do I see? I see a table that has the rock on it, just the VHS of the rock. Right. And I take the pen, I sign my dad's name. <laughs> I keep coming back, and I kept bidding on it. And of course, after a while, nobody was bidding on it. I mean, these were all adults. They're not going to go crazy for this VHS. Right. And obviously, I won the VHS. So and how much did it cost? What oh, I, I wish I remember it. What did VHSs cost back then? I mean, I mean, I, back in the day, the original price of something like that, I don't think The Rock was released directly to sell through. So it would have been in Canada, like one twenty nine, one forty nine, maybe okay. street value or suggested retail price, the price that no one ever paid. Yeah, of um, course. And this was ninety six. DVD would come a couple years later. Yeah, so totally yeah, reinvent the way people bought movies. But yeah, no, I, I'm pretty sure this would have been a sell like a, yeah. a retail price title. Well, whatever it was, I was I wasn't concerned with how much it costed. <laughs> I just wanted the movie. And, um, you know, it, it worked out, you know, yeah. dad said, okay, fine. You know, you came in, you were a sport, you escorted me to this event today. It's for and, charity. You have to watch. Yeah, exactly. And I, I watched it that night and I fell in love with it. And I remember <laughs> I used to carry the VHS around sometimes whenever I'd be at a place that had a VHS player, you know what I right. mean? And I even skipped school pretending I was sick just to watch the movie. Like that's, that's what the rock meant to me as a kid who wanted to get into the movie business. So this was your first real deconstruction of film you would did you use it as an education or was it just for the sheer pleasure at the time i mean obviously the intention was sheer pleasure but i guess there was sort of this 
I think there was a correlation for sure between that pleasure and wanting to deconstruct and learn and be right. educated. You know, I think, you know, inherently growing up, um, there was just something that popped with action movies to me. There was some excitement, adrenaline rush, and I just couldn't get enough of it. And, you know, I wouldn't say The Rock was my first. You know, there were some older James Bond movies that right. were lying around my house, and there were some old R-rated movies that I would sneak in when, when the parents went to sleep. Um, but I think The Rock was the one that first stood out and solidified my goals and my ambitions as wanting to become a director. Right. Yeah, for me, it was Back to the Future. Um, I would have been 16, 17 when it came out. Right. And I just went back and saw it every week yeah. with someone else. I would just find a reason to go back on a cheap Tuesday. Yeah. And one time it was just for the editing, and one time it was just for the... By the, by the time right. I completely uh, had digested the film, it became, I'm just going to pay attention to... Yeah, camera angles. Some of the technical aspects. Yeah. You want to you familiarize just, yourself you just, with everything. You gorge on it yeah. that way. Um, so, okay, so I'm thinking this might have been your first exposure to Nicolas Cage, too, if you were 10. I think, I, you know what, to be honest, I think it was my first exposure yeah. to Cage, for sure. And even though I had seen snippets of the older Bond films, I mean, I grew up in the Pierce Brosnan era. Right. So those were more relevant. Those were the ones I saw first from James sure. Bond. I watched them completely out of order. Yeah, it was but, more for me, because that's what was happening. Right, was exactly. Game. And so I think it was my... And I think it was actually for a lot of audiences, this foray into a very different Sean Connery. Right. And and a lot of people like to joke that this was James Bond. Well, twenty years yeah, the later, alternate, the alternate universe James Bond. The exactly, reason that Connery disappeared was because the U.S. had caught him. Exactly, this very gritty, sardonic take on the character. So that was something. And as I've gotten older and more appreciative of movies in general, that's something that has sort of stood out to me as his character. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But I would say for sure. Uh, it was for Cage because a year later, Face Off came out, and yeah. I tried to sneak into a theater to see that one too. <laughs> Ended up ordering that on the video club stamp. <laughs> oh, it's just in a whole different world now. It is. You actually have to sneak into things, and the rock. Like, there's nothing in the rock that's particularly. Well, I mean, if you if you look at some of the deaths, I mean, with the the, the VX gas melting the skin off, yeah. I mean, that's pretty horrific for a kid, a ten year old kid to watch. Not me, but, yeah, but no, for, for a normal, I would have been fine with that. For a normal ten year old kid, it's you know, probably more about language than anything else. There was right? a lot of swearing, yeah. I mean, for sure, and um, you know, and I get, and that's also how the ratings have changed these mm. days too. I mean. Yeah, listen, that's a it's an R-rated movie. There's no doubt about it. But you're right, it's nothing extreme. Yeah, and certainly now it just feels like... I mean, now it feels innocent. Like, the idea that it's a pre-9-11 movie is something yeah. that's entirely... It's the, the, the age of the global terrorist threat has made The Rock almost look quaint. Because yeah. the bad guys are American. There's no external threat or menace it's all it's all domestic yeah it's all that weird period of 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 the 90s where the villains were either arms dealers or american drug dealers yeah exactly they were always reasonably homegrown yeah uh or it was something coming back to bite america yeah which technically this is too yeah but your hero is a british secret agent and your real hero, of course, is the... He's an underdog. The nerd avatar. Yeah, he's, right? he's, he's an underdog. He's, he's a weird, twitchy... Uh, Very unconventional. Yeah, well, he's Nicolas Cage. Yeah. He's Nicolas Cage in an action movie, yeah. which is, in its own way, um, deeply pleasurable and completely insane. Yeah, and you it's, it's exactly... You wouldn't expect there to be an actual line in the script saying, how in Zeus's butthole did yeah. you get out? You know, I'm that's pretty a Nicolas, sure there wasn't. <laughs> no, that, that is Nicolas Cage right there for you. that from his forehead. That and just the weird physicality he has, not when he's using like the stuff. It 
it makes perfect sense that Nicolas Cage would play a weird lab tech. Yeah. But then the idea that he would then become the action hero, that's where the genius is. That's, yeah. that's the thing that was... I mean, it was a trope throughout most of the science fiction-y stuff. It was the Mary Sue. There was always a character yeah. who was just sort of drafted into service. Like, Congo starts that way. Jurassic Park starts that yeah. way. All of Michael Crichton's books are about an incredibly deft scientist who gets pulled into a giant thing. Yeah. It uh, goes all the way back to the Andromeda. And how are they going to survive? How are they going to pull it off? Yeah. You know? And here, you just, you have the absolute um, incoherent okay, concept of Nicolas Cage, independent film actor, recent Oscar winner. Like, everything was wrong. Yeah. Everything sounds wrong. It just wrong. didn't, it made, it, yeah, didn't make sense to a lot of people. And that's actually yeah. funny. That's why Connery came on. Yeah. Yeah, Connery came on because of him. The challenge of working with... Yeah, it, it's just one of those things that when we heard about it, it sounded ridiculous. Yeah. The trailers made it look wrong because the, the cell was about the action and Cage was just generally gawking at something yep. or running away from something. Or a one-liner of yeah. some kind. He's reduced to a figure because Connery is the real draw. Yeah, and he, even, he doesn't even show up for 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. You know, It's just this build towards this ominous, mysterious guy that we don't know anything about, but he's the ultimate badass, and he's the one who pulls it out of Cage right. at the end of the day. And somehow that synergy, that the synthesis of those two actors who really should never be on the same screen in terms of talent or style or scale. No. Um, if it is... There's a charm to it. Yeah, it's like gobbling jelly beans. It's the only way I could describe it. Yeah. It's like a sugar high. Watching yeah. them interact with each other. And just the weird, the beats, the, the great Zeus's butthole line, but even just the initial friction between the two of them where you honestly can't tell if Sean Connery cannot stand to be around Nicolas Cage yeah. because of the weird eccentric line readings or just because they're both committing that much. Yeah. It's Michael Bay is not known as a director of actors. He's and, not. And I suspect that most of that was stuff that the actors came up with on the day, but it's so much fun. It, it is so much fun. I think their dynamic works. Like I said, there's something charming about it. There's heart to it. Yeah. You know, because even early on in the film, Cage does this really nice gesture where he, he sort of saves face in front of his daughter, in front of um, uh, Connery's daughter. Yeah. And, you know, Connery thanks him. <laughs> you know, they just go right back into their old sort of shtick, but... You know, Bay is not known as as an actor's director. Yeah. Although, if you if you look back and you listen to commentaries, and, and you you know even Bruckheimer talks about it. You know, Bad Boys, for instance. You know, apparently there were some really interesting ideas he brought to the table to get or or at least get these guys to emote. You know, because mm -hmm. you had Will Smith, you had Martin Lawrence, yeah. and there were scenes really known for exactly action hero and activity and, stuff. And we know that the script for that movie, you know. It, it wasn't there. I mean, it, it all was there on the day and the, the actors and the director. But, you know, I think this is a movie that kind of proves Bay's ability to work with actors. And I actually will say that I would argue that, um, you know, after the stories that I've heard and how he pulled performances out of Lauren, uh, Lawrence and Smith on Bad Boys, um, I will give him credit for some of the, uh, the character moments in The Rock. And I think that if you watch the movie, this proves his ability to build characters, develop the characters uh, build suspense and tension. I mean, look at the uh, the bathhouse scene. You know, you've got a bunch of second second rate, you know, day players. You know, mm -hmm. other than Michael Bean, you haven't really spent time with these guys. But the the scene is so intense. You're caring about all of these guys who are there, about to get blown to smithereens. Right. And if you watch the scene, see how he fosters the tension. It's actually done quite masterfully, in my opinion. You know, and you go to YouTube and there's a lot of people saying, like, this proves that this guy actually knows how to direct. What happened? You know what I mean? And and again, you know, I've got my own opinions on his other works. But, like, you know, I think The Rock best exemplifies 
his ability as a storyteller as opposed to a technical and visual artist. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I think this is an argument I, I find myself making for a lot of filmmakers. Uh, I think unlimited resources are the worst thing you can give to someone who is a commercial filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, you can say it about Burton, mm-hmm. who became a commercial filmmaker and then lost his soul to it somehow. You can say it about, um, I mean, Cameron even. Uh, Avatar does demonstrate that it's possible to do too much with too much. Yeah. And with The Rock, you have exactly the right level of limitation, both in terms of budget, presumably, but also in terms of the story, where you know you don't have giant killer robots. The, the, the no CGI. Yeah, the airplanes arriving are a threat. They're not the next scene. There's yeah. something to... There's a motivation to keep everything contained and small, mm-hmm. story-wise. And ultimately, like it does come down to a guy shoving a thing in another guy's mouth. It's really, really small. The yeah. story is as concise as I think it's ever been for him and in this in the case of The Rock even more so there's no love story yes there's no which I love there's no distraction there isn't it's just about the story it's what is the objective what is the goal what are these characters trying to do A to B yeah and and I like that and it's funny and I've you know I put that into my my recent movie Gridlock which a lot of sort of elements and tropes are taken from The Rock and inspired by that because you know who says you need a love story you know, there's, I think it became this thing over time where, you know, some producer or some studio had somewhere said, it doesn't matter what the genre is, we need a love story. We need to lure that demographic in. And, and The Rock doesn't shy away from what it is. It, it's an adrenaline-fused action movie. Right. You know what I mean? And I respect that. It's all about male bonding or male bonding fracturing. Yeah. Um, you have... Yeah, there's. I mean, there's patriotism. Can't forget that. It's yeah, a Michael Bay. Well, movie. It's a Michael Bay film. <laughs> uh, you have the opportunity to have. I mean, there's a. I, I guess now, if you did it, there would be female characters in the squad. You, you'd have. Yeah. To, you would have to integrate it. Yeah, Bean's character, the commander, would probably be. Mm. You know, female. Yeah, or um, maybe one of the mercenaries. Yeah. You know, you get your your. You uh, get a female. Fi- you get a really Gina cool. Gina Carano or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because it's been done. Because that's how the Fast and the Furious movies are working, and those are fantastic in their kind of weird gender blindness and ethnic blindness and the, the multi-everyone yeah. spectral activity that's going on. I don't even know how to describe it, but it is yeah. fantastic that you it's working. gigantic films with not, with a predominantly non-white cast and women, and it's fine. Like, nobody questions it. And yeah. then you get something else where it's just suddenly obvious that they didn't think that far ahead right. and you're stuck with it. The Rock feels like, because it's the 90s, you can get away with all of this stuff. It's you long, can. It's, this is the way it, it was done. Uh, and I was thinking about something like Executive Decision. Yeah. Uh, three years earlier. Which yeah. Is sort of the same movie. Yeah. But, a but, different setting. I mean, yeah, the but threat it's a, is the there. The ticking clock and someone yeah. who has to defuse a, a nerve gas bomb. It's all kind of there. It is. But at the same time, it's it's limited by all the choices that it could have made and went wrong with. Right. You know, stuff like Halle Berry is yeah. and helping Kurt Russell land the plane. All that stuff is just a bit too ridiculous, yeah. but not. I mean, it's trying to be... I don't even know that it is trying to be self-aware ridiculousness. But there's a thing that's going on in that movie, and in it's also in True Lies a little bit, where the film just has to step back and tell the audience, I know this is silly, but let's keep going. Yeah, we and, were aware. Yeah, and The Rock is like, no, it's not. Shut up. Yeah. I've got this. Yeah. It's not silly at all. And because of that, you get this straight-faced juggernaut thing going on, and that lets Cage puncture it. Yeah. Because that's what we would do. Like that—that—that's the genius. The, none of the other films gets right. Is the audience surrogate is also the hero, but 
he is allowed to be terrified. He is allowed yeah. to be, you know, just pants shittingly terrified. And we're amused by it. Yeah, and we get to enjoy that. Yeah, despite how assertive, you know, the movie's uh, direction is and yeah. the story, it, it's it's saying, yeah, listen, you know what? He's the hero, but yeah, he's still a nerd at the end of the day. He's still the underdog character, and he's still way out of his element. Yeah. He's and, not supposed to be here. Yeah, it is. it is that kind of weird infusion of... Not an independent spirit exactly, but it feels like there's this trickster energy inside the movie. Right. And that's all Cage. And it makes yeah. you... It made me feel like the movie has to be in on the joke to be letting him do this. Mm-hmm. So without ever breaking its character or its aesthetic, yeah. the film allows you to enjoy that. And that's the thing that nobody else seems to be able to do. And I I, I don't know if it was an accident. It couldn't have been an accident because it's in the film. It was allowed yeah. to stay there. Yeah. It's not just these two little bursts of something where they obviously kept the wrong take or something. Yeah. He didn't trick anybody. But the movie feels like this delivery system for this bizarre attitude. Right. Which is why I can still kind of look back on it and think, yeah, that is a gigantic studio picture, uh, which is a machine to make money. Yeah. It's like the, the first Pirates of the Caribbean, where you have this gargantuan machine that is engineered only to exploit this one thing, except that it has this insane energy mm-hmm. bouncing around, not just in terms of depth, but also in Jeffrey Rush. And yeah. that, like everybody's working on a slightly campy level here. The Rock is a textbook. Yeah, it's the uber action film of the 90s, yeah. except that it also has this thing inside of it that yeah. won't let you completely get flattened. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. We both say it is the action movie in the 90s, but I still think, you know, I've shown it to people who have never seen it. Okay. And I mean, you got to understand these are people who have seen the Avengers, all the tentpole movies now. Right. And I still think it stands the test of time. You know, you watch it. Yeah, you know, there's a couple, you know, digital shots there with some of the jets and an explosion. But even if you look at that for, for the 90s, I mean, it's way ahead of the green screen that's been done in other action movies. Mm-hmm. And I think even the, the dynamic between uh, Goodspeed and Mason, the, the two main characters, it, it's it's on the same level as you would get in any sort of summer action movie now, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But it also takes... I think it's a little bolder. You know, I think now we rely so much more on the spectacle itself mm-hmm. and, and these CGI-laden movies that we're kind of missing what, what these characters brought to it. And like you're saying, like, you know, a nerd who's out of his element and, and, and all these sort of tropes that did work in the 90s that, that we're just not getting now. Yeah, it's weird to realize that, you know, so many movies, almost all the superhero stuff is in some way an adolescent power fantasy. It's fan service. It's like, what if you were Spider-Man? What if yeah. you were, you know, Captain America is the only one that stands outside because he is literally isolated through time and all that. Correct. It's from the 40s, he is a different person. Mm-hmm. He can't represent the, the audience, but he can make the audience feel really good about being right. on his side. The Rock is absolutely contemporary. Even, yeah, and I'd say it holds up now because Michael Bay's attitude and style haven't changed. They've permeated. They're like yeah. This sets the tone for a lot of what commercial filmmaking is trying to achieve mm-hmm. for the next 20 years. Dexter's heard this before, <laughs> uh, but it but it's the that weird, I mean the spiraling the the spinning camera stuff yeah. that just got incorporated. That's in CSI now. That's just incorporated everywhere into now. television. Yeah, and so it feels familiar, but also because it's so instantly recognizable, it is immediate. It's still yeah. now. Yeah, just it's still- fewer cell phones. Yeah, and I think it's funny because you know. 
Listen, like I say, this movie does demonstrate his ability as a storyteller, mm-hmm. right? And I think you can still see that in some of his other movies that came after. I mean, you know, a lot of people have their feelings about The Island. You know, it was obviously his least successful domestic movie. That first hour movie. was great. I like the first hour. It is, but it's a lot of it's character development. Yeah. It's story. Dialogue. Again, he can prove it. Okay, he's got it. You know, listen, the, the Transformers, we'll call it a cash grab franchise, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But, you know, even movies like Pain and Gain in 13 Hours, which I guess would be his second biggest failure, if you want to call it that. I would um, call it that. They, they still sort of demonstrate those abilities that he showed off best in The Rock, which mm-hmm. has to do with character, which has to do with, you know, I want to say taking its time to develop and build the story. You know, whereas a lot of people will be like, you know, it's just an egotistical, I can make a two and a half hour movie. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily see it like that. No, I'm not saying that uh, they need to be that long. Yeah, it's funny. I don't know. Like, I've seen all of his films. Yeah. and I don't know if they're cuttable. I don't know if you can. They're, they're long. And in, in you some mean from cases, their current iterate, like, yeah, the, taking the them version down. they are feels like what they need to be, even when I don't feels like, like they were built for that. Yeah. I, the, the, the latest Transformers Age of Extinction is two, two and three quarter hours long. It's, it's insane. insane. It's, I saw it and I experienced all of it. And other than the idea that it doesn't need to exist at all, Period. which is how I feel about it. Yeah. Uh, likewise. I kind of think that it is what it wants to be. I just don't like it. Yeah. You know, it's fine. I've talked to a lot of editors also about this subject because I think now we, it's funny. Some will argue that we're living in an era where there's this arbitrary, magical number that movies need to be in terms of length, you know, 90 to 100 minutes. But we're also seeing a lot of these, you know, Oscar movies and a lot of these, again, tentpole movies that have no problem running over two hours, you know. And and there's a lot of people that are fine with the length of some of Tarantino's movies, for instance, you know, Mm -hmm. or or the length of an Avengers movie. Sure. Um, But, you know, uh, The Rock was, I think, one of the first of its kind to sort of over exceed two hours. Yeah. Well, two and a quarter. I mean, that's the average length of a Bond movie at the time, right? I mean, they're always around 130 or so. Yeah, I guess and they were. Die Hard is 130-something. Yeah, Die Hard. Yeah, you're right. And Die then, Hard And the Cameron was. films were already going insane. Yeah. But the other thing about that now, the running time question has totally changed now because it used to be that every 20 minutes was a reel and that, you know, it yeah. cost more money to print more exactly. reels and have longer movies. So you could have one if there was... It was easier to get it past the studio to say this movie is going to be X amount of time longer than usual right. if you were making a blockbuster with huge returns. And I think that's, like, yeah. you know, the Towering Inferno is three hours long and stuff like that. Yeah. And I think that carried over into the, the expanding the Marvel movies and Dawn of Justice. Like There's a mm-hmm. there's a three-hour cut of the Batman-Superman movie that's coming out next month on Blu-ray, and I'm terrified of it. Yeah. Because I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah. But but it doesn't need... like The, the movie as it is doesn't need to be two and a half hours long. Oh. But... With these, like The Rock and Armageddon too, which is, yeah. which is two and a half. Well, and even then, you, I mean, it's funny. It's kind of like he, he upped his running time. Every, you know, oh, yeah. Bad Boys yeah. is still his shortest movie. It's, an, it's a buck fifty. Yeah. You know, and then Pearl you got Harbor's the... Pearl Harbor's three and something. Yeah. I mean, and that's not even the director's cut of Pearl Harbor. Yes. And, then, and then I think The Island, he went back down in running time yeah, for a little like bit. Just under two or just over. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, now it's like, he doesn't care. He's not looking at the yeah, clock. 13 hours certainly doesn't need to be... Two and a half. Two and a half. Yeah. Two and three quarters. Yeah. Two twenty. But 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 with The Rock, and to a lesser extent with Armageddon, these are movies where the story needs to be told at this length, just because it you does. have a, you have a labored prologue. Yeah. You have a considerable. Which I love like, about the first the Rock. act's really long. It's, it is not in a negative way. It's the roller coaster going up the hill. Yeah. Well, like I said, Connery doesn't come in until thirty minutes. But you know what? It's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. You know, nowadays. 
I don't know how people would feel about that. I mean, again, you can get away with it at certain studio movies, but sure. if you weren't introducing your main character, the one you're billing the movie off of for 30 minutes, it's like, yeah. you know, what are we doing here? But I think that's what's so good about The Rock. And, and you know, Bay talks about this in his commentary. He's like, you know, I want to suck the audience in right from the get-go. So I open the movie with two action scenes, in a sense. You know, when you're when you're breaking into the lab to steal the nukes and uh, introducing Nicolas Cage's character. Yeah. I mean, that's like 15 minutes right there, just those those sequences to sort of set up the tone of the movie. Yeah, and this is a film where a toxic gas is released and nearly kills someone in the first reel, and that's simply to establish the stakes, yes. which is kind of great, yeah. which is the sort of thing that, you know, Die Hard doesn't have that. No. Die Hard takes a while. Um, yeah, the villains don't show up for almost half an hour in that movie, party, too. Yeah, yeah, but Die Hard needs to start slow because the entire point of the movie is the emotional relationship that between uh, McLean and his wife that has to be rebuilt and restored Correct. through the entire film. You have film. to care. With The Rock, if you don't start off with a bang, I think Michael Bay would think that people would get bored, but also that just needs... He needs to explain... His whole thing is introducing characters through action and yes. immediately showing you why they are who they are. And I think that's one of the reasons that you need actors, like proper actors. Yeah. So you have not only... And we should talk about this. Not only do you have Cage and, and Harris and Connery, who are all already instantly recognizable types and performers, but you get... Tony Todd and, and Michael Bean. John Spencer. Yeah, this amazing Great cast of, second, yeah. of B, not B players, but... I mean, let's call them secondary. They're sec yeah. yeah, they're secondary, uh, you know, secondary characters yeah. who are comprised of character right. actors. But, you know, like Gregory Sporlater's in there. People who would be written off as bit players in other people's yeah, movies. Forsyth. Yeah, these are actual character actors yeah. rather than some second-tier actors. Yeah, you can't put them on a billboard. Yeah. yeah, they're not bus stop actors. You're not going to drive by and see them and yeah. go see the movie because of them. But everybody who sees them in the movie knows exactly who they are because they've been in a million. There are a million yeah. that guys. Yeah, that the guy, that face. That I can't, guys. I can't get his name, but I know him. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, at the age of ten, had you seen them in anything before? Or was this like your first? I had seen Bean, Michael Bean, because of obviously Terminator. And right. it's funny because you were saying that that Bay starts off with a bang and introduces his characters through action. And Michael Bean, when I worked with him on Tapped, was talking about how Cameron does something very similar, but he does it with exposition. Mm. Cameron uses exposition in action scenes so that they don't come off as exposition. You know, they're exciting. So I think that's kind of similar to, to what Bay's doing here. Um, but, you know, I had definitely seen Michael Bean before and I had seen Ed Harris in The Abyss. Um, and it was funny, in, in working with Michael Bean, he was talking about sort of the spectacle of this movie, just shooting it. You know, they didn't they didn't know how this would turn out. Obviously, Bay, the Bruckheimer team with, with Simpson, everyone knew that this was a bankable team to get in business with. You know, Bad Boys was a smash hit. They weren't expecting it to be as successful as it was. Right. And, and, and of course, uh, Simpson and Bruckheimer had established themselves throughout the 80s with a certain level of commercial film. Movies that they didn't think, like sleeper hits, we'll call them. Yeah. yeah. But Flash hit hands. makers of these things that yeah. became massive sensations and Top Gun being like yeah. a perfect example of it. Yeah. Where they're, I guess if you're working with them, you expect a certain level of Yeah. Facility. And when they paired up with Bay, I think he also pulled out more from them, right? Like I think the there was this magic partnership between the three of them. And obviously it was unfortunate, the, the untimely passing of Don Simpson. Right. But, you know, Michael Bean was, ta was talking about how, you know, just on set, 
it just felt this movie just felt huge at the time you know yeah he'd still worked with Cameron but you know he was there's there's a sequence right before they uh, they're deployed and they go off to, to Alcatraz and and Bean rounds up the seals and he gives this big speech right before they got on the helicopters they've got Humvees they've got cranes they've got all this stuff and he flubbed a line and he said the feeling he felt when he flubbed that line he was like he's like I've been in the business a while but oh my god I feel so embarrassed because the reset time just sure. to set up a sequence like that where you have hundreds of military extras and all these vehicles and the, the helicopters are landing the Humvees are pulling up it just just if you think about it at that time well yeah pre-CG it's all real it's Everything all is real and just the amount of time it would have to take and you're shooting on film not even digital yeah. the amount of time to take to set that shot up again you know base sitting with the megaphone in Video Village he probably wasn't thrilled about it you know and it was just funny just hearing that from a veteran actor yeah. you know like of his of his ilk yeah so um did Bane ever talk about the the script? I mean, how finished was it when they were working on it? Was there a sense of that? Yeah, you know, we didn't talk about that too much, but obviously it's been alluded to by many people, and obviously the writer, Jonathan Hensley, has gone out and spoken about this openly, and Bay has supported it, Bruckheimer supported it. It's, it's no secret anymore in Hollywood that Jonathan Hensley wrote the script for this movie. And funny, we're talking about Die Hard. That's how Hensley got in the business. He wrote a spec called Simon Says. That's right. Because- and they said, hey... We're going to make this Die Hard 3. We're going to change this around. It's going to become McLean instead of your your title character. And that's how Hensley got in the business. Right. And, you know, of course... Um, and wasn't Simon Says also briefly considered it for a Lethal Weapon film? I, it might have been. that's I'm not, where the Zeus character... I thought... It might have been. I'm not been sure. Introduced at that point. Yeah, it's possible. I actually haven't heard that. That's that's oh, interesting if was that was. It bounced around at the time. I don't know if it was true or not, but I think it was because Lethal Weapon 3 had been released a couple of years earlier and had yeah. sort of... Would have been 92, 93, yeah. yeah, and so this one comes along in '95, and people were talking about it as though it could have been. Could have been it was just because Silver produced both films. Yeah, it's very possible. Um, but either way, it got Hensley into Hollywood, into right. the inner circle, and you know they're saying you know Tarantino and Sorkin did drafts, and you know, but at the end of the day, you know, the shooting script was Jonathan Hensley's, and I think it's one of those unfortunate things with how the unions work because he got no credit for the movie. Um, but you know, it, I guess it becomes one of those things. Okay, the outside world doesn't know you wrote it, but all the important people in Hollywood know that you did. Yeah. And even if you go back, and I've you know over the years I've read the script. You know, I was curious to see how it read on paper on the page. And similar to how we were talking about the movie's actual assertive energy, the script is the same thing. You know, there's a line in the script where Hensley, you know, it's during the car chase with the Ferrari, and I think one of the lines verbatim is. You know, um, he the car swerves in one of the most incredible, uh, you know, slides you've ever seen on screen or right. something to that effect. That sort of hyperbolic shame black. Hyperbolic, very bold, very just, you know, it's in your face and it's okay. Yeah. You know, and I thought that was something that was always very interesting. So, you know, this obviously was up Bay's alley. Yeah. Uh, the Tarantino, there's no way he could have gotten involved in that space, of, that window of time. I always thought that... the. I mean, you can hear his voice bursting out in Crimson Tide, no question. Yeah. The Silver Surfer stuff, like, there's yeah. just chunks of it. Yeah. The Rock, nobody talks Maybe it didn't, might not have, you know what? It might not have made it into the, yeah. in, the in the draft that Hensley wrote, you know? It's possible. Tarantino could have come on right before him, which I'm sure he did. Yeah, there just aren't any monologues. No. I mean, the closest you get is Harris, and his stuff is too measured. Yeah, you get the Harris, and you even get a couple moments with Bean as well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, there's a couple, but they're not. Those are functional models. Yeah, measured, as you say. They're not, yeah, they don't have references. Yeah, exactly. Outside the world of the movie. Yeah, at no point does Michael Bean say, you know, I used to watch this TV show called Dr. Kildare. Yeah, exactly. There was a doctor. He would be here. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine how Tarantino's imprint would work. No. Sorkin, I could see. 
A lot of walking and talking. Yes, a lot. And the classic, uh, that's true, you know, now that I think about it, the, th the, the defining thing about Sorkin is that all of his characters are always totally right. Yeah. Righteously furious about something. So you get both Harris and Connery. Yeah. Either one of those could work. Yeah, as, it's as true. Hero. And you got some White House scenes in there. You've got a lot of the uh, the and military even, politics. Yeah. Yeah. And even Goodspeed is right about everything. He just doesn't have the authority. He doesn't have the confidence yeah. either, if exactly. you think about it. Yeah, that's what's missing from yeah. the Sorkin formula. Yeah. Uh, oh, now I want to watch it again right now just to unpack it. <laughs> just to see so, what Sorkin wrote. Yeah. So Ballpark, how many times would you say you've seen it? Oh, man. It definitely, of all the movies I've watched in my life, this is the one I've watched the most. It's, it's got to be... 30 times. Yeah, that's probably my number for Back to the Future, too. Yeah. I think there's a point yeah. where the brain stops caring. Like, you just don't think about but, it anymore. But does that sound... I mean, it's funny. When you think about it, Does that? Is that a lot now? Is that a little? I mean... Who knows? I don't know. I can't tell you. To me, that feels like... videos are probably... Yeah. You're frozen. God, frozen. The frozen generation is going to... How many times a day do these each. kids watch it? But you know, with The Rock, you know, obviously, I've watched segments... Sure. ...a thousand times. But I think start to finish, probably like 30 times I've watched this movie... Yeah. It's 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 funny. I went, you know, before we sat down, I wanted to watch through it again from start to finish. I haven't had the time, but you know, I was able to watch some of the big scenes again, get back into that mentality. Yeah, and that does lead us to the key question of every episode, which is, what of the rock has infiltrated your DNA as a filmmaker? What is it? What have you carried with yourself, or is there any one thing in your work that is a direct? Did you blow up a cable car? Uh, I wish. I wish I had the money for that. <laughs> Believe me, I do. Next and I don't know if it would be a cable car. Yeah, next time, for sure. We'll flip some cars on Bay Street. But, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of the structure, I took a lot of the structure away from The Rock. You know, the sort of opening with uh, introducing your main character with an action scene was right. definitely something that, that I was inspired by. But also taking my time to develop the characters in the first act. You know, it's funny. You know, in my movie, uh, Dominic Purcell's character and, and the young gentleman, Cody Hackman, who plays the actor... And they're sort of paired up in this sort of buddy cop scenario. Um, you know, they don't really let out the air until the end of the first act. And the the actual attack on the facility, which which sort of opens up that diehard scenario, doesn't happen until forty minutes into the movie. Okay. Now, normally, that's a long time for an independent film, studio film. That's fine. But you know, that was something that I took away from as well. And I was like, you know what? I want to spend the time with these characters. I want the audience to spend time with these characters, you know, and, and it starts off as a ride along kind of buddy cop film and morphs into something different at the midpoint, you know, and that's something that I really took away from the rock and, you know, a, a lot of other movies, even Die Hard, like we were saying before, you know, the, the terrorists don't show up until half an hour almost, you know, yeah, yeah. at that, that running mark. So, um, you know, definitely a lot of that and the one liners, you know, trying to, trying to have some of those nineties one liner moments and, you know, there, there's. I think we could go on forever, but there's definitely a lot that that I took away, or at least that I was thinking about. And actually, as I was saying before, Stephen Lang talking about villain motivations and what makes a great villain. I think in this movie, and it didn't make it until the final cut of the movie. It was more so prevalent in the script, but the villains having tension between one another, right. disagreeing, separated um, agendas, things like that. The subordinates sort of going up against the leader, the general. You know, there's there there are elements of that in Gridlock for sure that were inspired by The Rock as well, which which when you check it out, you'll you'll probably get those glimpses of it. Yeah. So do you find it because you're trying to make a nineties movie in the in the present day, do you find it difficult or easier to hit points that people recognize? How do you, you know, like you have to play your audience and you yeah, have to let you them do. Know. That's the tough part because so, comedy Look, I mean, it's like a lot of people will say, 
while Full House was always meant to be really cheesy and corny, it still worked in that era. And a lot of people have gone back now and watched it and been like, oh my God, yeah. like, it's not working. So there was definitely an, it, there was a challenge in building the, the legs of this movie and, and having some of that comedy. And what I found was that some of the comedy that we had written in the script was not going to work for this sort of, let's call it a new age demographic, you know, sure. the, the, the millennials. Yeah. Um, but what we found did work, which always works and delivers in spades, is having a a grumpy, sardonic character paired up with a quirky character. And a lot of the comedy comes into sort of the delivery of expression. Right. You know, someone talking, getting ignored, having uh, the response that they're not expecting. You know, that's the comedy that ended up working. And I think that comedy is timeless in a sense. You know, there are certain, you know, let's call it slapstick. Slapstick doesn't work the right. same way it used to. So I think I feared after editing the movie, that there were things that wouldn't play. And I think it's fair to say that there might be moments that feel too 90s to work now and not get the laugh that you want. But, you know, in sitting with audiences and watching this at the festivals, they laughed at the parts that we were banking on them laughing at. Right. And obviously Danny Glover in the film says his lethal weapon line. And of course, thankfully, that delivers in spades and you get people clapping. And, you know, that's, that's a big one that, you know, right. I wasn't worried about that because I knew if we could convince him to say it, People would get it. People yeah. would love it. Who doesn't respond to that line? Exactly. You know? I mean, I'm tired of hearing it from other actors. But yes. I think if you can pull it off with, with a yeah. reference to the actual... <laughs> if you can pull it off with the, the real actor as a reference to the actor, that's fine. Yeah, and, and that was impossible. That was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my in my short career so far. Like That was a very big challenge because he was very weary of it. You know, the thing about Danny is that obviously the franchise of Lethal Weapon himself, the line, it's ubiquitous. It's just everywhere. Sure. It's inspired these memes and, and oh, all these other movies. Now, yeah. And the funny thing is that, you know, when we were doing rehearsals for the scene and blocking it, he just pretended it didn't exist. I mean, it's there on the page. Yeah. But he just ignored it. He wouldn't mm. say it. And I had to basically go up to him after in his trailer and just say, hey, so about the line, you know, yeah, I'm not doing that. And, <laughs> you know, it was a, it required a 10 minute conversation of me being, you know, being like, listen, you know, it's not meant to be disrespectful in any way. It's meant to pay tribute. I mean, you are the reason. You, Dick Donner, Mel Gibson, you're the reason I'm here making movies. You know, you're the reason, you know, what what you guys started, what you and Shane Black started, like the, this era of buddy cop action. This is why I want to make movies, you know? And I sort of stroked his ego a little bit, but, but not in a sort of classless, tasteless way. I, I was trying to be as humble as I could. And he's like, listen, I appreciate it, um, you know? doesn't matter i'm not doing it and you know I, I felt upset about it but right before we shot he called me back in he's like you know you got heart i like you i'm looking at this environment here i'm seeing how everybody's working you know you got dominic purcell who's having the time of his life i don't know there's something here i'm feeling there's like a synergy and i'm liking the i'm just liking the environment and i think he just did it because you know he saw something charming in what we were trying to do and he i think he was moved in a way yeah. you know of how grateful we were to him and those actors and, and that, that franchise and what it did for, for, for the movie industry in a way. Yeah. You know? Okay, so if you have the opportunity to work with Nicolas Cage, what line, would you steal a line from The Rock? Or Zeus's line? butthole knob. <laughs> Put yeah. it on his license plate, something? I don't know. I mean... You know, I mean, this would require another hour, but you know, he's got some lines and face off and put the bunny, put the bunny down. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Get the back in the box. Put, put the bunny back in the box. Yeah. Put the bunny back in the box. Um, you have to reverse engineer an entire bunny situation. Yeah, I would have to concoct something to make it work. I don't know. I don't know if it would work the same way as I'm getting told for this shit, though. But yeah, it is. It's an. It's 
It's a classic. It's iconic. For a reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's iconic. My thanks to Alan Unger, whose new movie Gridlock debuts today on Blu-ray, DVD, and VOD, and which you will probably enjoy if you're a fan of '90s action movies like The Rock. You can find The Rock on DVD and Blu-ray as well from Walt Disney Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also for rental and purchase on iTunes and Google Play. But you should definitely seek out the Criterion Special Edition DVD, which is still in print and is kind of amazing. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Uh, This week's call sign is, the second you don't respect this, it kills you. Thanks for listening. Mm